You already know that Illegal Pete's makes delicious, mission-style Mexican food. But did you know that Illegal Pete's uses its marketing funds to support Colorado creative talent that we love? We support the Denver Diatribe Podcast, the Grolix Comedy Showcase, Rocky Mountain Roller Girls, the Yellow Designs BMX Stunt Team, Apex Movement Parkour Team, the Underground Music Showcase, and more. We even have our own record label, The Greater Than Collective, with albums by The Epilogues, Snake Rattle Rattle Snake, Esme Patterson, Ian Cook, and comedian Ben Roy, and a starving artist program that feeds out-of-town bands traveling in Colorado for free. Illegal Pete's. We're more than just a restaurant. So, let us put our food, and music, and comedy, and sports, inside you. Please. Please. When the new light rail line to Golden opened last week, my family packed a lunch, rode another train downtown, shoved our way into one of those shiny new but crowded train cars, and headed west. Of all our stops, I think the new station at Federal and Decatur was my favorite by far. When you step off the train, you walk out into this wide, open, expansive plaza. For the grand opening, there were food trucks and stunt cyclists and people dancing. Behind everything, there's just this amazing view of the downtown skyline and Mile High Stadium along the horizon. For a Denver nerd like me, it was pure heaven. But something happened there six years ago. Something so tragic, it shaped the trajectory of the entire Westline project. On this week's podcast, we're going to tell you that story. Denver, Denver, I'm run, Denver, 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 I'm run, Denver, 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 Hello and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly podcast about Denver, Colorado, the city voted most likely to succeed by its fellow classmates. A few weeks ago, we were asked to host The Narrators, the monthly storytelling series. For our evening, we chose Colfax Avenue as the theme. Our podcast this week comes from one of those stories told that night by our very own Jared Jukang Mayer. It's a story about a story that I actually tried to write over several years. And uh, from every single angle that I tried to come at it, I couldn't seem to make it work, and it's always been a nagging feeling in my head. It still revisits me sometimes. Sometimes the stories that you don't tell are the ones that you uh, tend to remember. And this story is a a Colfax story. It actually starts at a place called Lower Colfax. If you keep going west on Colfax, you go over the highway, see the stadium right there. You're in the viaduct, so you're up above the ground. Below you is Lower Colfax. It's an actual street. And um, it's in a neighborhood called um, Sun Valley. And our story, uh, the story starts with a, uh, a woman who lived right there in Sun Valley, and she was taking her son, she was a young mother, taking her son for a walk in her stroller one May afternoon, uh, maybe early evening, in uh, Rudy Park right there. And the area around Sun Valley, if anyone's familiar with it, it's, it's, it's such a a weird place to be because on one hand you're buffeted by the huge uh, sports authority field parking lot. You're buffeted by a, um, the river and the highway, and you're just in this valley of industrialness 
and uh, nothing basically, but there's a real neighborhood there where people live. But if you go into Rudy Park and you're walking along the bike path there, it's actually pretty nice. There's a creek and it starts to hail. Uh, hail gets pretty heavy. And so she follows the bike path under where it goes in a tunnel underneath the roads. Um, there's a kind of a underpass right there. And so she goes underneath there and uh, it's hailing really hard and she's waiting. She calls her, her, her mother-in-law t- tells her that, you know, I'm here with uh, Matthew was a baby. He was about two years old and we're just going to wait out this storm. Uh, the water on the Creek starts to get a little higher. Pretty soon it starts to jump over off the Creek and onto the bike path. It's getting her feet wet a little bit before she knows that it, it's getting her ankles wet. It's up to her knees. It's up to her waist. Pretty soon she has that sinking feeling where she's being pulled backward. You guys all know that if you ever get stuck in a tide and you are slowly starting to slip, she grabs hold of something, a, um, a concrete wall with one arm. With the other arm, she has the stroller, and she's holding onto it as tightly as she can. And I was actually caught in the same storm. This was in 2007. I was riding my bike home big hailstorm. I probably took shelter in a bar or something like that. Uh, and I was, uh, storm ended and I come out and there I'm riding my bike home, wanting to cross 15th street down there by Confluence park. And there's all of these law enforcement emergency vehicles, big spotlights shining into the water and the water is high. It's probably a, one of the highest I've ever seen it as far as like cubic meters of water. I think it was triple the normal amount. And it it was this raging rapid sort of pushing through Confluence Park there. But it wasn't like, you know, the mountains raging rapids where there's white water and things like that. This is like the dark stuff where it's all the rainwater pushing through every single, uh, you know, sewer and storm sewer and alleyway and pushing all that blackness and gunk from the city and cramming it right down through the Cherry Creek and the South Platte River. And uh, a crowd had gathered and everyone is looking because there's uh, a baby boy that is missing in the water. Everyone's looking and trying to see if maybe, maybe you can see something. Is it a log? Is it a 40-ounce bottle? Or maybe it's a a boy floating by. Um, And this was the amount of force and pressure in terms of water that was, uh, you know, uh, a few hours earlier was bearing down on Elsha because you see where she was there, it's called Lakewood Gulch. And imagine that on there on the West side, that all the houses were taken away and it was, uh, nature had sort of shaped that Gulch. So all of the, um, it was the tributary, the place where all of the water would come for, for miles and would all funnel into that gulch. So when it started raining, all the water from those west side neighborhoods like um, West Colfax and uh, Westwood and Barnum, all of that was flowing down, flowing down into the Lakewood Gulch, flowing into that creek and flowing directly into the tunnel where Elsha was taking uh, shelter. And uh, this wasn't a normal tunnel. This was actually a, just basically a, um, a big water conduit. And that's the way it was designed for. It was actually, the technical term, I think, was a uh, concrete box conduit. And that's what it was. And it was designed to just take tons and tons and tons of water and force it into this little tiny area, this little pinhole of an area. And all that force and pressure was pushing her down. And uh, before she knew it, she... She lost her grip on the stroller, sees the stroller float away, 
uh, pretty soon the fire department is there and they're able to throw a rope down to her. And uh, the first thing she asks is, have you found my baby? And they say, no, we haven't. And then she yells something like, I don't, I don't want to live without my baby. She lets go. And uh, so the way, it, uh, the way it turned out was she was able to be rescued a few hundred yards down the river. Uh, the stroller was found maybe half a mile down the river. And then two days later, the body of uh, baby Matthew was found two and a half miles down the Platte near Riverside, which is actually where he was uh, eventually buried. So, uh, you know, I was there when this happened. It was a big news story, right? TV crews, trucks, uh, both daily news. We had two daily newspapers at that time. We're covering it. Uh, huge outpouring for this tragedy, for this this natural event, which had, you know, taken the life of this baby and just just the drama of it. And so being a storyteller, being a reporter, I knew that there was a great human drama story there, right? And uh, I didn't want to sort of chase the ambulance right there or jump on the bandwagon. So I didn't really approach the family for uh, a few months. It might have been six months later, but then I started writing them letters and things like that. And the, the funny thing about Denver and water, it's such a dry place, right? We were essentially in the high desert. So we don't really think of, of water as being an issue. We look at the Cherry Creek, half the time it's barely a trickle. But the funny thing is, is that Denver's history is inextricably linked with water. It's been shaped by water because when water does come, it comes in big flash floods and people get lulled into a sense of complacency. So I uh, was able to get an interview a few months later with uh, the grandmother. And I thought, okay, great. Here's my great human drama story. I can go get the story of the mom losing the baby, what it's like, the history of water in Colorado. And I went and met with the, with the grandmother who lives right there in Sun Valley, um, house is kind of a, you know, a bungalow type house, but surrounded on every single side by like industrial buildings and factories. Um, and I, you know, she took me inside. I, you know, asked them a lot of questions. I got to see the room of baby Matthews that they still haven't touched. It's still all the same. Um, and I started talking to her about this, but the more I talked to her about this story that I thought that I was going for, this human drama story, the more I found out it wasn't about water. This isn't a water story. This is a story about a neighborhood because the grandmother, um, her name is Margaret, she was angry. She was angry at the city because for her, this wasn't a story about an incident that happened out of the blue. This wasn't a natural disaster story. This was a story about a neighborhood, Sun Valley, that's been neglected by the city of Denver and the state for basically its entire history. Um, so you can think about every single bad social policy and bureaucratic um, neglect. It, it, Sun Valley is the poster child for that, whether it was uh, rezoning, rezoning the neighborhood as industrial in the uh, early 1920s, whether it was putting the uh, Valley Highway, I-25, right down the middle of it and buffeting it on both sides, whether it was um, taking the utopian ideas of building public housing, right, in the 1960s and 50s, a lot of public housing. Well, they put a bunch of public housing in this isolated valley, basically, and uh, in basically warehouse the poor there. And that's why today... Uh, Sun Valley is the poorest neighborhood zip code, I think, in Colorado. $8,000 uh, per capita income per person. 
um, you know, pollution from the industrial zone. And so for grandma, this was actually a story about that, about the city not caring enough because that, that those culverts were designed for water. And sometime in the 1980s, they decided to put a bike path through it with no signs, no warning signs at all. And grandma says to me, you know, you think that if this would happen in a different neighborhood, if this exists in a different neighborhood, we're on Colfax here, but if we were on the other side of Colfax in uh, Park Hill or um, on the other side of Colfax in Golden, that something like this would have been able to stand, that they wouldn't have had some kind of warning. And it actually turned out that for several years, the city of Denver, the engineers had had that culvert, had that those tunnels on a list to be demolished. It was one of the most antiquated, um, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, we've had lots of other ways to mitigate against flood control, and this was one that they needed to get rid of. But it had always been on that list, and no one had ever seen time to bump it up as a priority until this happened. And so all of a sudden I realized, well, this is actually, this isn't a human drama story. This is a investigative story. Um, and so I, you know, went after this tact for, I don't know how long, maybe eight months <laughs> while I was working on other things, but, you know, trying to get people that work within the city to sort of admit anything. And they admitted that it should have been changed, but to say that I could find that smoking gun. But every time I tried to sit down to write it, I, I couldn't really make it work. And it's one of those stories, like, as, as my binder of research got fatter, the more lost I became because I couldn't, it wasn't a story about human, you know, your standard human drama story in a natural disaster like a wildfire. It wasn't this investigative report. Well, then what was it? It was something, you know, these, this family was in pain. They were struggling to try to get the city to pay them a settlement for their medical bills, and they kept on hitting brick walls. And so as things happened, time went on, and I just kind of lost track of the story. It was always there. But it's interesting, though, because three weeks ago my wife and I had a baby, Going through that experience and in the coming weeks and knowing I was going to do this, I started thinking about that story. And, you know, just, just an aside, uh, labor and, and birth and delivery, there is nothing – you want to talk about not natural? There's nothing natural about labor and delivery. I, I've, I just have to mention it's, it's a cruel joke of evolution that humans have evolved to walk upright. And every time you evolve to walk more upright, your pelvis becomes – less apt to be able to deliver a, something the size of a, you know, the size of a large fruit or something like that through it. And so what we've had to develop, and, you know, I witnessed it through nine hours during my wife's labor, but the uterus being this muscle that only exists completely outside of yourself. You don't have any control of it. It's not like your arm or your, you know, your, any one of your muscles. It exists just to, just to tighten and squeeze and put pressure from every end to push a child through, through an unnaturally small hole, right? And uh, it's, it's beautiful, you want it, but it's not natural. There's nothing natural about it. And so up during the middle of the night holding my son um, during, the, during these past few weeks, thinking about this, telling this story in, a, in a, a detail that I remember finding out during that time as I was doing this story emerged in my mind. It was that the, the father, when he found out that his son had been swept away, his name is Matthew too, he left his job at the warehouse, came down, stood at the river, and when they found that he didn't have it, he tried to throw himself into there, and he had to be held back 
And then after the funeral, a few months after the funeral, he, he did it again. He was still living in the same house, you know, walked up, left a note, and walked to the river to throw himself in. And I thought, and I was thinking about that. When I first heard that detail, I just thought it was like really poetically significant from a literary point of view. But, you know, when holding my son, I, I thought about, you know, what it would mean to have this, this thing that emerged out of this abyss, abyss, this child that you loved and you cared for be taken away into that same abyss. Would you go and, and, throw yourself back into it. If they be, they're such a part of you deciding to let go of that rope and say, I don't want to live. And, and I want the same, I want the water, the same water that took my son to swallow me too. You know, I think about that now. I don't really know. I still don't know why I haven't been able to write that story. The thing I am coming back to is the, the, the whole idea of storytelling is unnatural in itself, right? Like these, all these events happen, these things happen all around us. And then we come and we decide that we're going to impose this narrative on top of it, that we're going to take something and take all this chaos of events and, and create a story out of it. It's like, we're trying to seek meaning out of something. We're trying to force all of this mess, all of this brackish mess of life into this tiny little hole whether it's on paper or whether you're telling the story. And it's some stories don't lend themselves to be told because what was this story actually about? Was it about a natural disaster? Was it about water? Was it about the history of Denver? Was it about poverty and neglect and bad social policy and um, ignoring the poor and fatherhood and motherhood and tragedy? Well, yeah, it was about, it was about all of that. In many ways, it's kind of like, the story of a city. Thanks. Although Jared never wrote his story, many others did. In the last six years, countless articles and studies and reports have included the tale of that day in 2007 when Elsha Gould lost her grip on baby Matthew. In the end, Elsha received a small settlement from the city of Denver, and she and her husband eventually had another child, a baby girl. And... Partly due to baby Matthew's death, there have been many changes in Sun Valley over the last six years. Construction of the West Light Rail Line included a major overhaul to Lakewood Gulch, which reopened in the summer of 2012 with a ribbon-cutting and a memorial ceremony for Matthew. And if you look southeast from the Federal and Decatur Station, you can see a new, totally redesigned bike trail snaking its way through Rudy Park. The banks of the South Platte River are green instead of gray, but it's what you don't see that matters the most. That antiquated concrete box conduit is finally gone. This week's episode was recorded live at The Narrators, a monthly storytelling series that takes place every third Thursday of the month at The Deer Pile. For more information about their live show or their podcast, please visit thenarratorspodcast.com. The Denver Diatribe is sponsored by Illegal Pete's. Our theme music is by T.J. Miller from his extended play EP, and our web hosting is provided by bluechannel.com. For more information about Denver Diatribe, check out our website, denverdiatribe.com, or search for Denver Diatribe on Twitter or Facebook. Today we leave you with the song Holding On by Denver Street Sounds. I'm Ron Doyle. On behalf of my co-host, Jared Jukang Mayer, thanks for listening. Put your fist up to the sky if you really want to feel alive. Put your fist up to the sky. If you really wanna be.